0: Good to see you all here this morning. It's always fun to meet new people. It's sometimes overwhelming. Actually, I can't look at you through these because you look really blurry. But if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be picking up where we left off from last week. So that's uh, verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. And if you'll stand with me, if you've found your place, if you'll stand with me as we read his word together. As Paul continues his letter to the church at Philippi, to the disciples, the followers there, he continues the message to you and I these many years later, and starting in verse 5, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name the name of Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we've been doing our study through Philippians, and one of the things that we've talked about is the fact that. The book of Philippians is a book of joy. It's referred to as the epistle, the letter of joy. And as we look through this, there are many aspects of joy that we can find. As as we've been talking about having a right perspective, having a joyful perspective in all of life, joy and suffering, these many things that we need these right perspectives, don't we? Because we live in a crazy world. If you haven't figured that out well, don't go watch the news. I was going to say, go watch the news. Don't go watch the Well, maybe you should. <laughs> because it helps us. Uh, as, as Pastor Brian was reading and praying earlier, is that we need to be reminded in all of life circumstances who's in charge. Amen? That will anchor us. But as we were studying last week, in verses 27 of chapter 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2, We talked about the joy that we have in unity or that we ought to have. That as we are unified, we find great joy together. And I presented four points for you. Unity is expressed through our identity, unity is often forged in suffering, unity is a clear reflection of Christ, and unity is others minded. And the joy of our unity is founded in our identity with Jesus. It's forged in that shared suffering. It's reflecting the example that Christ has left for us. Who is others-minded? And unity requires a dying to self. It's to say, listen, it's not just me that matters in this world. It's a dying to self and a commitment. In order to do that, a commitment to daily seek and follow Jesus Christ seeking fellowship with the Holy Spirit, who consoles and comforts us, allowing us to be, as that earlier passage says, the affection and compassion of the Lord to our community, to each other, and to the world at large. Now, as we consider those four truths, and since we are to reflect the Christ in our unity, verses 3 and 4 sets the stage for our expressing that. And so if you look again now at verse three and four, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, your personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So at the core of being others-minded and at the center of our unity is an attitude of humility. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there is joy to be found in that humility. Our world doesn't seem to understand that. It does, certainly doesn't communicate that to be, to be humble. Oh, that's not necessarily a joyful place to be. But in God's kingdom and in his economy, there is great joy in humility. Because it assists us in having correct priorities. And a perspective in life. Again, we talked about that earlier in, in, in chapter one. As an instrument of unity, you and I need to discover that joy. We desperately need to discover that joy. Now, if we profess to be followers of Jesus, then our hearts, our minds, our attitudes ought to consistently demonstrate the attitude of Jesus, an attitude of humility, And verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 communicate really the heart of the book of Philippians. So if you were wondering, so what is the key passage in the book of Philippians? This is right there. It's anchoring us, understanding that our example is in Christ. For in them we see the heart of Jesus, which ought to be displayed in us, his followers. So Paul writes, through the Spirit, he writes the following words to you and I these many years later, picking up at verse 5 now, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, some of your translations may say, have this mind. And I think these two words are really important. Um, Mind really communicates more than just um, like, hey, I need to have a, a, a right emotion, Mind says it's all of it, it's what, we, it's what we think, what we feel, and then how we act out of those things. He says, have this mind, a transformed mind, so that it engages all aspects of your life, the way you think, your emotions, the way you feel, and then how you respond to both God and each other. It's a transformation. The transformation of attitude or mind is revealed in humility. So what is humility? There's a couple of quotes for you. I like them both, so I I decided to put them both up there. Humility, this is C.S. Lewis. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, but thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Because we are pretty preoccupied with me, myself, and I. (laughs) Amen? It's just, we are, we are by nature selfish people. This is part of the fall, the brokenness that enters into every person's life. And then Andrew Murray said, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. So as we think of ourselves less, and we think of Christ more, we enthrone him in our hearts. We just don't, we don't make enough room for the self by giving Lord, the Lord, his pright position in our lives. That he would be enthroned in our hearts. He would be transforming our minds. The attitude of our heart is what is essential to the Lord. In Proverbs twenty-three, twenty-six, he says, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. It's emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. You are a letter, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, the disciples, you and I. You are a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. God is most interested in what we think, feel, and how that makes us respond You and I need a heart change, an attitude adjustment. I love this. It comes from the military. (laughs) We need an attitude adjustment. Joyful humility requires an attitude adjustment. And, And that attitude, keep in mind, that's a mind, a changing of our mind, a transformation of our mind. Because of sin and disobedience to God, our default position, as I mentioned, is selfishness. I'm going to look out for myself. And our current culture really emphasizes this, doesn't it? You've got to take care of yourself first. You can't love someone else and love, unless you love yourself. Listen, we love ourselves plenty. We get up every morning and feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and find out ways to make more of that happen, right? It's not that we need to think, you know, love ourselves. We, the problem is we love ourselves too much. Now God wants us to look to him, to have a mind and an attitude adjustment. There in verse 5, he says, have this attitude, have this heart, have this mind in you, which was in Christ. This maybe helps us to think of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Now he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, the believers there. If indeed you have, heard him and you've been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, you have a heart and mind change, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." We need a transformational work in us, don't we? It requires an attitude adjustment. We ought to possess and both express a new self, the attitude of Christ, a Christ-like attitude, the heart of God. If we don't have it, we need to seek it. And when we seek it, he says, what will we find? We will find him waiting there for us. Delighted that we came and said, hey, I will give it to you abundantly. I will change you. I will transform you. He is faithful to do these things because of who he is. So what does a Christ-like attitude look like or this mind of Christ? Verse 6 now, speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. You're taking notes. Point two, joyful humility does not consider its reputation. Really, verse six is, it ought to be an awe-inspiring verse that we, I think too often we like read over it because we've read it many times or we read past it and we never let the words hit us with their full weight. Jesus existed before his appearance as a baby there in bethlehem he is he was the eternally exists self-existent lord of all creation this is why it says in genesis 126 let us make man in our image the triune god the father the son the holy spirit there creatively coming together as one one god three persons yes i know i can't explain it better men than I have tried. But Jesus was there in the beginning. All things are made by him, through him, and are held together. Where Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God, Eternal Father or Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is God, fully God. That's not enough. Jesus said in John 8:58, as he's speaking to some of the religious leaders, and this really ticked them off, and so much so that they desired to stone him, because he said, Before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He was referencing the name that God gave of himself to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say to the people? Who shall I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. And then Jesus is equating. This ought to rock our worlds as we think of who Jesus is. And we think of now what he is doing or did in that time. What was the attitude of that, that earth-shaping, galaxy-breathing, life-speaking God who possesses all power and authority? It says he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be held on to. I, I like the fact that here in this passage, because oftentimes I think we can say, well, I mean, like he, he, he's just given it up. No, it was already his. He was already It's not like he had to attain to this or maintain it. He is already that thing. Now, the idea being is that he set it aside, not ceasing to be God. He did not cling to his reputation as God because his love for his favored creation for you and I provoked him to do something to intervene in our lives because the debt of sin that I owed, that we owed. He stepped down from that glorious place at a significant cost to himself. The Lord did not consider his reputation as a barrier to his love. So he was God. Now listen, if we're honest, if we had this kind of authority and power and as we look down on these puny little ants crawling around on this giant marble and the the mess that we've made, we'd be like, good luck. (laughs) You made your bed, go sleep in it. But God with his powerful, awesome authority and love and grace, he says, I don't have to hold on to that reputation. I know who I am. And my nature is love. My character is to intervene for those who are lost and are perishing. Lamentations 3.23 and 24, it says, The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Because he will always be faithful. Amen? He cannot deny himself, as the word says. He cannot deny being faithful to those whom he created, to be in relationship with himself. He remained faithful to the nature of his steadfast love and mercy, which compelled him to act with humility, despite his awesome power and authority, and with joyful humility, he set aside his reputation And this leads us to our next point. Joyful humility embraces the lowest position. Look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, before we talk about the bondservant piece, I want to briefly talk about what's meant by the words, he emptied himself, because there can be a lot of confusion, and there are different thoughts on this. I think there's only one clear one, though. These three words, he emptied himself, are encapsulated by the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty, come to nothing, to set aside or divest oneself of a position. This is what he did. He didn't stop being God. He constrained himself for a season. Jesus emptied himself or set aside his right or privilege to act in that human form as the sovereign God. Additionally, he took on that form in the position of a servant or a slave, a bondservant. This all makes us think of the incarnation we celebrate there at Christmas time. He came in the form of a helpless, fragile little child, the God of the universe, encapsulated in this little tiny form. God, the creator of heaven and earth the one present at the first bit of creation, when he created the first humans, clothed himself with a fragile human body, took the lowest position in society, and limited himself to the constraints of humanity. In the Gospel of John and First Timothy, These things are here. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is fully God. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man. And, And Isaiah prophesied this some 700 years before the birth of Christ, that this is who he would be. To this day, many Jews will not read Isaiah 53. It's very problematic because it, like the Pharisees of their day, it presents Jesus, the Messiah, as a suffering servant rather than a conquering king. This is too hard. How is he going to free us from the bondage of Rome if he's a suffering servant? Well, they missed the whole point of the sacrificial system which is to point to the Messiah who would satisfy the debt, the sacrificial system, all it did was cover sin. It did not remove it. Jesus came to remove it. And it required him to be at that low position. It does not mean he ceased to be God. Let's be clear. It does not mean he ceased to be God. Instead, it means he ceased to act independently as a human. Again, how is this possible? Listen, I don't know. (laughs) Better men than me, smarter men than me have debated this and tried to boil this down. Can we be satisfied with the fact that God says there are things that we can't understand? Our puny, finite, little human minds can't be, or we can't wrap our minds around the truth that everything that God is. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 20. It's one of my favorite pieces of, of that uh, chapter, it says, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. I love that word. It's just a fancy word for it's impossible. Us understanding everything that he is and will be and knows, it's impossible. We're trapped in these broken, frail bodies because of sin, Fully God and fully man. Can we be content with the God saying, you won't understand everything about me, but someday you will. Now look at the word bondservant. Now, I, I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. Um, the closest thing that we can understand within our cultural context, really what takes us all the way back to the early American history and the uh, practice of indentured servitude. That began shortly after the settlement of Jamestown around 1607 as they were trying to farm the land and they didn't have enough people. And so they they began to develop this process that people could come over there. Now, here's a little piece of history. Again, I like history. Um, According to one historian, one-half to two-thirds of the immigrants who came to the American colonies arrived as indentured servants. One half to two thirds were indentured servants. So what does that mean? Well, if you were one of the many people in Europe that were looking for a better life, you were poor and you there was, you, you were just saying, there has to be a better way to live. I can't afford land I'll never be able to afford land in the current, my current location. I don't have the means to travel to the New World, to the American colonies. What I would do is I would contract myself to a, land, a landowner in the colonies and say, listen, if you'll transport me across the sea, I will contract to serve you without pay for a specified number of years. In exchange, you will feed and you will clothe me, and at the end of that term, I will satisfy the debt, and I will be released to free man, free woman, to pursue whatever God has for me. Again, these person, people voluntarily contracted to do this. That contract was called an indenture, and that indenture would satisfy the debt that was owed to the landowner or to the ship's captain or both. Now, this was nothing new. It's actually described in Exodus 21. In some instances, the bond servant in the Jewish culture could make that contract even permanent. They could say, listen, I have a great master. I have a, I have a great Lord who's benevolent and cares for me kindly, and I can make this permanent. But it's also an extremely low position in society because you're acknowledging I am nothing. I have nothing all I have is this, that's all I have, just me, here's my life, do what you want with it. This is the position that Jesus took upon himself. He came to live, to suffer, to die on our behalf, to satisfy the debt required, a life sentence. It required a life sentence. His perfect, sinless suffering and death Despite being the Lord of heaven and earth, it was necessary to satisfy the debt that I owed. Now, to get an understanding of what that kind of humility looks like, I've seen just a little tiny glimpse of this in my lifetime. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Wayne Esterline, the Calvary pastor of Oregon City, passed away, and we did his memorial service here. Uh, he, one of his sons, Jeff Esterline, and our good friends, he pastors in Calvary Chapel Yakima, but we were talking after his uh, after his dad's memorial service and just remembering some of the early foundations of our friendship and one of those things. About 1995, we traveled. We we decided we're going to go to the youth workers conference in Calvary Chapel Bible College there in Twin Peaks up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and so we got off work and we took off driving and we drove through the night, uh, exhausted. Arrived exhausted about an hour before the conference that next morning. Just completely red-eyed, zapped, just desperate for a few minutes' sleep. And so we check in. They give us our room assignment. They give us some directions. We start wandering through the campus trying to find him. We get turned around on the campus. And so we ask the groundskeeper, hey, would you show us, tell us where to go? And he says, I'll, I'll show you the room. And he visits about us, walks, shows us to our room. We get about a 20-minute nap. That's all we got, 20-minute nap. We show up just kind of pouring coffee down our necks and great worship. There's, you know, several hundred young people, men and women there to learn how to serve the Lord in the context of their youth and how to serve the youth of the, of the body of Christ. And as worship ends, um, the speaker walks up and, and it's the groundskeeper. It's Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. The, the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, he was wandering around the campus picking up garbage in a dirty old sweatshirt and some jeans. This is a little piece of what it means. A, why, why we might understand this. What it means to have like no reputation. Like, ah, let's just lay that down because there is someone greater. God intends us to be different. In the ultimate example of this, in John 13, Jesus took this position literally. When they're in the upper room, as he's ending his time with his disciples, says he wrapped a towel around himself and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter took great obsession to this, didn't he? He's like, no, like, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body, right? I mean, you shouldn't be doing this. You're the Lord. I mean, remember his previous words, right? Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And he's like, hey, you can't be doing this. And God says, if I don't do this, you'd have a part of me. Because this is the example that I'm setting for you. It's the example he's setting for us. Are we willing to put our hands to anything the Lord asks of us? Not caring what others think, are you and I ready to set aside our reputation for the sake of his kingdom and embrace the lowest position or do we consider it beneath us? And this is a hard thing to get past sometimes because again, at the core, we're often much too selfish. And we want to be recognized. And we don't think we're going to be recognized in that low place. And God says, he turns the whole thing upside down, right? He says, the least will be greatest. The last will be first. To do this, we must be obedient. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Joyful humility is obedient. Being, becoming obedient is a command. This is what bond servants or slaves do. We don't like this word, right? We have a culture that, comes, that has that as a piece of our history. I mean, we have a wrong idea of what, what Jesus is talking about. We also have a culture that wants to promote a lack of obedience, a lack of submission to authority. We need to get past this. God commands us to be obedient to him, to submit to his authority. He set an example in himself. John 13, when he watched the disciples' feet, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. This goes back to this whole idea of potter and clay. We are the clay, the one that he is molding. He's the potter. He has authority and wisdom that we do not understand. We cannot comprehend what he is doing with us, maybe in the moment. But it is going to be good, and it's going to bring glory to his name. Amen? Our job is to be obedient. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Simple, he says, you'll obey me. but that comes with an attitude adjustment do we believe that he is good and perfect in all things one of the great problems in israel's history has been the issue of obedience god addressed that in first samuel chapter 5 or 15 22 When he told them through the prophet, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Listen, they could bring all kinds of sacrifices, but they were failing to do everything that led up to the sacrifices. The simple obedience of administering grace and mercy and compassion, of not prostituting themselves to other gods, not disobeying him and setting up idols all over the country. Now, We gotta be careful. We can maybe say, oh, we throw Israel under the bus, you know. We would have to throw ourselves under the bus right with them. If we're honest. We are no different than they. We can look back and then say, wow, if I'd have seen that, no, we wouldn't. We would be one of them. Now, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31, there is a parable that Jesus gives. It's the parable of two sons. And he gives the, the, the father gives a command to the two sons, and one says, basically says, yeah, I'll do that. That's great. And he doesn't do it. <laughs> he just walks off. The other son says, I'm not doing that. But the later on, is like, eh, he's my dad. I should probably do it. I'll go do it. And Jesus asks, which one was the obedient one? And he was really poking at these people. These religious leaders, he's telling them sinners will get into the kingdom of heaven before you due to your unbelief, your pride, your arrogance, because you don't know your place, you won't obey me. Now, maybe you've been like me, maybe to bring it a little closer to home, maybe you've been like me when you see one of your children hitting their siblings and you reach over in anger and you smack them and say, don't hit Right? You laugh because you've probably done (laughs) it. Right? Now, again, not advocating that we stop spanking our children, you know, corporal discipline or whatever. I am saying that we ought to be obedient to the Lord. And disciplining our children in anger is not a good idea at any time. Jesus became obedient starting as a child. Then adulthood and ultimately to the cross. The King of all creation humbled himself in obedience. He only did what God told him to do. John 5:30 I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Obedience. The foundation of humility is submission and obedience to those the Lord has placed above us. We need to understand this. This is, again, a problem that we see in our culture. Bear with me, younger people. We have a culture right now that doesn't want to submit to your boss. I mean, you've seen the memes, perhaps. Perhaps they made me work a 40-hour work week. Well, did you get paid? We are losing our minds because we have lost sight of who God is. Again, Bob Dylan wrote a great song. You got to serve somebody. It will be the devil. It will be the Lord, but you are going to serve somebody and you get to pick one. And it will affect every area of your life, the choice you make. It will affect your ability to be humble and obedient What part of our lives is the Lord trying to teach us obedience that He might form in us humility? What thing is He asking us to do that we're saying, I'm not equipped for that? I'm not ready for that. Listen, that argument's been tried before. (laughs) Moses said, You know, listen, I'm not very good at speaking. And God gets a little ticked off at him and says, Who formed your mouth? I think I can make it talk. (laughs) So let's be honest. When we say no to God, it's often very little to do with Him. It has everything to do with us. We're not willing to submit. We're not willing to take a risk that requires us to yield to Him and be dependent upon Him in humility. That we would be able to then say, people say, man, I know you. You could not have done that. And then we could joy, with joy, say, yeah. You're right, I could never have done that. But I serve a God who can change me to make me do that. Amen? This leads us now to verse 9 through 11. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. In response to the example of Christ, I pray that we we might have joyful humility. In order to do that, we must experience an attitude adjustment by learning to demonstrate the heart of the Father with a Christ-like attitude we can set aside our reputation for the sake of his name and kingdom by embracing the lowest position in life so that the name of Jesus would be exalted. Let me say that again. So that the name of Jesus would be exalted. This requires our submissive obedience to his word or as I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, our calling to respond in the way that we are called according to our calling, which is to display the gospel. Because joyful humility reveals God's glory. In view of verse 9, Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, now just pause over this thought that Christ did not crown himself, but that his father crowned him. That he did not elevate himself to the throne of majesty, but that his father lifted him there and placed him on his throne. The joy of Christ's humility was knowing the delayed gratification of being glorified or honored by the Father. This is what we have to look forward to. We don't have to somehow make ourselves look so good. And this is the world's view, right? Build yourself up, promote yourself, market yourself. There's one of the things I really hate right now. There, it was played during the the uh, Super Bowl. He gets us. I'm sorry. I'm just going to talk about it. It drives me crazy. Um, because uh, I, I got to hear the people that are part of that program, um, and their God is their 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 whole idea is that we need to market God to be relevant. <laughs> he does not need our help. <laughs> oh, he gets us for darn sure. He knows that we are but dust. He knows our hearts that they are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it except Him? He knows our destination apart from him. No, it's he who elevates us in his time and in his way, both on this earth and in heaven. The joy of Christ's humility was that delayed gratification. You and I have not arrived at what we will be. It's recorded in 1 John 1, uh, 3, I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 3, 2 through 3. Oh, man, I'm messing this up. First John 3, 2 through 3. Blech. All right, here we go. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have this, as Philippians earlier said, we have this confident hope that what he is forming in us presently, he will complete in us through humility and that it is joyous. It's a joyous reward in itself, humility. We look forward to then an eternity of seeing God for who he is and experiencing his completed and perfect work he started in us. Now, as we raise our children, one of the more challenging aspects of parenting is remembering that our children are a work in progress. Amen? Kids, if you're here, young people, if you're here, you are no different. Your parents are trying to help form and shape you, but they are also being formed and shaped. So you're in this together. Have a little grace for each other. And I will confess that at times I get really frustrated when one of our kids would weren't just weren't getting it, right? Not, at least not in a consistent way. Like, I'm trying to teach you something. You need to learn this, and they're just not getting it. And, and that can lead, I know as a father, that can lead to treating my kids with a harshness and a lack of grace and compassion. And that's definitely not the heart of God. And over the years, Sam would gently remind me, I can still hear it echoing in my head, hey, Kev, they're not done yet. They're just not done yet. Thinking back to those early frustrations of childhood, I can still hear her say, you know, hey, they're not going to go to kindergarten with a binky and diapers. They're not done yet. They're going to get there. Through all the stages of our lives, we need to hear this. We are not done yet. And what he's preparing for us, we cannot comprehend it is far more glorious than anything that we will obtain by our own effort on this planet. He will seat us there. He will crown us for his glory. For now, we see glimpses of what he's doing, maybe in each other. But those glimpses really just reveal the reward that awaits us. In those moments as parents, young people, grandparents, great-grandparents, we get to see the glimpses of his glory when we're looking for them. But we have to be looking for them. 2 Timothy 4.8, it says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to but also to all who have loved his appearing. Revelation, it says, Worthy are you to take the book, and it's break its seals. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and nation and people. You have been made to them a kingdom, a priest who are God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is our future. But God gets to determine the terms of that, what it looks like as we live. We are to be obedient to him. We need to understand that there's a greater reward waiting for us. In all these things, we must remember that joyful humility is a hallmark of our unity. Let me say that again. Joyful humility is a hallmark of our unity. And it displays our confident hope of his glory revealed in us and through us, and what awaits us. Now, as we close this morning, as the worship team comes forward, I want us to consider the lyrics of a song. It's been out for a while. I'm not sure when it was written. It's from a band called Down Here. The, the song is called How Many Kings. You probably hear it on the radio still. But the song reminds us of the humble character of Christ, his nature, Remind us that we ought to worship him in his word, in prayer, in song, in service, to live by his example, and in this we will display joyful humility. These are the words that says, how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods poured out their hearts to romance a world that has torn all apart. How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did this for me. Only one did this for us. This is his example, that we might know joy in humility and display him, amen?